All right, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 tonight. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, as we see, if you remember where we left off last time we were together, that we had seen at the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan was released from the pit. He goes out and he tempts all the people that were born to the humans during the millennial kingdom. They all come to fight against Jesus at Jerusalem. He consumes them with the breath of his mouth. Fire comes from heaven, as you know, and just... They were consumed. And then we saw, as we studied last time, the great white throne judgment where all the dead from all of time are brought back before God at his throne. And they're judged, each one according to what had been recorded in the books of each of their lives. And because their names weren't in the book of life, they were cast into the lake of fire. And Satan himself was cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. And now at the end of that, John then says, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I need to clarify for some of us this word heaven, because that's thrown us off a little bit, because we use the word heaven and we think of heaven as meaning where God is. But to the Jewish mindset, whenever you see the word heaven or heavens, they would always kind of picture the fact that they, when they looked up above the earth, they, they believed in three heavens, if you will. The first heaven is where the birds fly. And they knew that there was beyond that an area where the stars and the sun and the moon are. They called that the second heaven. And beyond that, they knew there was a place where God existed beyond where they could see. And they called that the third heaven. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he knew a man, whether in the body or out of the body, he wasn't sure, who had been taken into the third heaven. He had gotten to see heaven itself. The third heaven is where God exists. And so in the mindset of the Jews, when here John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, he's not talking about a new place where God dwells. What's he talking about? The sky, what we can see, the skies were different. The, you're going to see, as we study tonight, where the sun and the moon are. That aspect, the part of the heavens that you can see is going to be all new. Now, if you remember, during the millennial kingdom, everything on the earth has been refurbished. It's been fixed up. It's been brought back to its almost original state, if you will. Um, but at the same time, as you're going to see tonight, the new heavens and the new earth are totally different from the millennial kingdom because the reason I want to take you there tonight is there are some people that if you do study, you'll, you'll see that some people actually confuse the two or try to make the two the same. You know, they try to say that the millennial kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth are the same thing, and they're, they're not. And I'm going to show you scripturally how so clearly they can't be. And on top of that, <clears throat> has any of you ever read Randy Alcorn's book on heaven? 
It's a great book. I recommend it to everybody. It's awesome. Now, I'll warn you, it's about this thick, but it's an excellent book. The only problem I have with Randy Alcorn's book on heaven is near the end of the book, he starts taking some time to speculate on some things that we don't fully understand from Scripture, like whether or not your pets are going to be in heaven and all that kind of stuff that people like to ask about. And he, he comes up with some hypothesis, but the problem with it is, in the middle of the book, he makes this statement that even though he, is, he believes in pre-tribulation, pre-millennial, he said the amillennialists, I can't even say it, amillennialists have a good argument. And so he's confused as to what he really believes about how things are going to be in the end. And also, as he's answering these speculation questions, like, are my pets going to be in heaven? He uses millennial kingdom passages to try to talk about the new heaven and the new earth, because he gets them confused. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to show you the difference between the new heaven and the new earth and the millennial kingdom and help us to see that. He says it's very important that you see the difference. So start off with me in Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, look at verse 17. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, look closely at what it says. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Don't, don't miss this. How many of you over the years have had that question of, what's it going to be like in heaven if we know that our loved ones aren't there? Have you ever had people think about that? Well, ultimately, when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, the ultimate, what I call the eternal state, where we're going to be forever and ever with the Lord, Look closely what the scripture already says. When we're in that new heavens and new earth, the former things won't even be remembered or even come into mind. And you're going to see that a little bit more as we go into it tonight. Now look at verse 18, though. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. We got a problem here. How do you go from talking about the new heaven and the new earth, and now you've got people dying? Well, without realizing it, verse 17 is talking about the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 18 jumps to the millennial kingdom, describing the millennial kingdom. And that's why it's important for us. As Some of you grew up in the King James Bible. You remember how the Bible says we're to rightly divide the word of God? We need to understand the way that God has worked in different times periods and is going to work so that when we study the scriptures, we then say, well, what is this talking about here? And we have to understand that in prophecy, one verse may be talking about one time period. Another verse might be talking about another whole time period. And the only way you'll know is to, to really study the scriptures. Now, I'm going to give you an example that hopefully everyone will understand. And one I've used before, some of you might have heard me use. Go back to Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, if you know this passage, you'll know that Jesus in Luke chapter 4 goes into his hometown of Nazareth. And being a rabbi, he shows up at the synagogue on the Sabbath and he, they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. 
The scripture actually says that it doesn't, wasn't haphazard, but Jesus actually unrolled it to this section, which means if he took the scroll of Isaiah to get all the way to chapter 61, he had to do some unrolling, didn't he? And he intentionally unrolls it right to this section. And he reads, starting in chapter 61, verse 1, and he stops in the middle of verse 2. He ends with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He doesn't read, and the day of vengeance of our God. He stops reading it to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls it up, sits down, and the scripture says, he then says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why did Jesus stop in the middle of the verse? What was that? The rest wasn't going to be fulfilled until we now know at least 2,000 years later. His first coming wasn't to judge. His first coming was to be the savior for the, of the sins of the world and to be the sacrifice for sin. His first time he came to die for our sins. And so he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, if you were the time period of grace or the church age. He's coming again. And when he comes again, he will judge. Listen closely then, folks. We understand this, right? This is something that's not confusing to any of us. Well, you have in the middle of just one verse, two different time periods. The first half of verse 2 is talking about one time period. The second half of verse 2 is talking about another whole time period. So don't be surprised when you look at prophecy to find chapter 65, verse 17, talking about one time period, and verse 18 talking about another time period, because God does that in the middle of a verse. So when it comes to prophecy, we need to keep in mind that the Scripture shows us that there is a difference, and the only way we'll know is to be faithful to study them, to know what the Holy Scripture says about the different time periods, and then be able to put these in where they belong. And so verse 60, chapter 65, verse 17 says, I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered uh, or come to mind. Then it says, oh, there's also going to be this millennial kingdom, it's going to be a really cool time as well, but people are still going to die in it. And that's going to be important for us later on. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3, though. 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 13. Peter says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world then, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for what? Fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And then the earth and the works that are done, in it, are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. That's the third time we've just seen it now, that the heavens are going to be dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so the scripture is very clear that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The millennial kingdom, it's not a new heaven and new earth, because if you remember, the earth that exists at the time is going to continue on. It'll be refurbished. It'll be reworked. There's going to be earthquakes and all this stuff that happens during the seven-year tribulation period where the islands are going to disappear and mountains are going to be moved and the whole earth is going to be leveled and all the cities, if you remember, at the end of the tribulation period are going to be leveled where Jerusalem is going to be split in three parts and the center part is going to be raised up. The, the earth is going to be reworked during the millennial kingdom, but it won't be dissolved. It's at the end of that, that there's a new heaven and new earth. Go back to Isaiah and look at chapter 66, because I want to give you a quick little quiz to see if you were able to track with me on what we just looked at. Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 24. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'll give you a quiz. Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 24. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh." All right, let me ask you a question. Is Isaiah talking about the new heaven and the new earth? Is he talking about the new heaven and the new earth and the millennial kingdom? Is he referring just to the millennial kingdom? I hear both over here. Anybody want to go with James on both? Jeremy says you're going with James? Good for you. It is both. Look closely. Jesus is just referencing here. When I say Jesus, remember he wrote the whole book. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me. In other words, I'm going to make a new heavens and a new earth. He's already said it to us in chapter 65, verse 17. Behold, I'm going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And the former things won't be remembered nor even come to mind. And just as that will remain before me, so the nation of Israel, he's saying, will also remain before me. But it goes on from new moon to new moon and Sabbath to Sabbath. You're going to see in just a little bit in the new heaven and the new earth, there's no moon. What has happened, by the way, to the moon? And the sun, according to Second Peter, it's been dissolved. You're going to see when we get to the description of the new heaven and the new earth, there is no sun anymore. There is no moon anymore because where are we getting our light? Jesus himself will be the light, the scripture says. Of course, I'm getting ahead of myself here tonight. But I want you to see he's referring to the new heaven and the new earth. Just as that's going to remain, you Israel will remain as well during the millennial kingdom from new moon to new moon and Sabbath to Sabbath. But in the new heaven and the new earth, are we going to go back and look over dead bodies? As it says here? No. We're not going to go look at the dead bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. Can anybody tell me how you know this? The former things won't come to mind or be remembered. So this is millennial kingdom passages. That's why it's important when you study to look at it and allow the scriptures and the spirit of God to help you understand what's it talking about here. And that's why there's been so much confusion over the years when it comes to prophecy and about things that are to come because we try to read it all together. But if we let the scriptures speak for themselves and the spirit show us that, hey, it's jumping around a little bit, you'll be able to figure out what goes where and it all begins to make sense. All right. So what I want to do 
is I want to show you some distinctions between the millennial kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth according to the scriptures. All right. One evidence from this passage in Revelation 21, go back to Revelation 21, one evidence from this passage that shows us that this new heaven and new earth will be different from the earth during the millennial kingdom is the fact that John says this new earth no longer has any sea. See it in Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. They were gone. They were dissolved. And the sea was no more. In other words, he says, on this new earth, there's no oceans. There's no oceans on the new earth. Now, go with me real quick to Ezekiel. That doesn't mean there's no more cruises? That's a good question, and we'll have to leave that one to the back of Randy Alcorn's book. So, all right, let's go to Revelation, uh, sorry, Ezekiel 47. Go to Ezekiel 47. In Ezekiel 47, look at verses 13 through 23. Here we see the prophecy about the way that the land is going to be distributed for the nation of Israel during the millennial kingdom. And starting in verse 13, it says, Thus says the Lord God, this is the boundary by which you shall divide the land for inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions, and you shall divide equally what I swore to give your fathers. This land shall fall to you as your inheritance. This shall be the boundary of the land on the north side from the great sea. By the way, that's the Mediterranean Sea. By the great, from the great sea by the way of Hethlon to Lebo-Hamath and on to Zedek and Barotha and Sibrium, which is, lies on the border between Damascus and Hamath, as far as Hazar-Hetakon, which is on the border of Horan. So the boundary shall run from the sea to Hazarinan, which is on the northern border of Damascus, which is the border of Hamath to the north, and this shall be the north side. On the east side, the boundary shall run between Horan and Damascus along the Jordan, between Gilead and the land of Israel, to the eastern sea, which is the Dead Sea, and as far as Tamar, this shall be the, on the east side. On the south side, it shall run from Tamar as far as the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, from there along the brook of Egypt to the Great Sea, again Mediterranean Sea. This shall be the south side, and on the west side the Great Sea shall be the boundary to a point opposite Lebo Hamath. This shall be the west side. Folks, you see that in the Millennial Kingdom, when the nation of Israel is given their inheritance, the boundaries are seas. So it can't be the same thing. Because John said, when I saw the new heaven and the new earth, because the old one had dissolved and had been passed away, the new earth has no sea. Now, <clears throat> I'm not going to take the time to get into too much speculation, but I can give you two quick reasons why there would be no need of a sea. One, right now, the seas serve a great purpose, and that's they provide our clouds. I don't know if you know that. If you've ever studied your elementary science, you understand the water cycle and how the water would evaporate and then it would con condensation and it makes clouds and it waters the earth. It's not going to work like that during the new heaven and the new earth, so you don't need it for that purpose. And there's a greater reason that a lot of people haven't even really thought about. The seas served their purpose for a long time, keeping man from killing each other sooner. Have you ever thought about that? It wasn't until these later years that we're in right now where things begin to pick up speed that the seas don't separate us anymore. But one of the things that kept man from killing man is that there's big oceans that they couldn't get across to go defeat each other. But now we're in that time where that's not a big deal anymore. But in the new heaven and the new earth, that's not necessary. And as you're going to see, there's not going to be a sun and moon and all that kind of stuff. And it's going to be a lot different. All John says is this. I saw a new heaven. The skies were different and the earth was different and there's no seas. So that means millennial kingdom passages here in 47 must be different than the new heaven and the new earth. There's another example, though. 
Another evidence that what John sees in Revelation 21 is not the millennial kingdom is the difference of the descriptions of the city of Jerusalem. You're in Ezekiel 47. Just jump over to chapter 48 and look at verses 30 through 35. And as he's describing the the, the boundaries and where all the nation of Israel is going to be getting their inheritance during the millennial kingdom, in Ezekiel 48, verse 30, these shall be the exits of the city on the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, and the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi, the gates of the city being named after the 12 tribes of Israel. On the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, there's three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, the gate of Dan. And on the south side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, so there's going to be three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on there shall be the Lord is there. Listen closely. Here we see the description of the city of Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom, and it's going to be square, perfectly square, 4,500 cubits on each side, which adds up to a total of 18,000 cubits. Now, right now, for those that are curious, the city of Jerusalem roughly has a perimeter of about four miles. Okay, the existing city of Jerusalem that we know right now has a rough perimeter of about four miles. If you do the math here, during the Millennial Kingdom, the city of Jerusalem is going to have a perimeter of six miles. Okay, keep that in mind and jump back to Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation 21, verses 15 through 17, verses we'll get to uh, most likely next week. Revelation 21, look at verses 15 through 17. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square and its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. And he also measured its, its wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. All right, so here John is given uh, he's to measure this new Jerusalem that's come down out of heaven. And he sees that it's the same length, that it is uh, width and height and everything. In all directions, it's the same. And each wall is 12,000 stadia. I know we don't use that measurement, but I did the research, and that is just shy of 1,400 miles long. Each wall of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is going to be 1, 000, shy, just shy of 1,400 miles long each side. By the way, that makes a perimeter of 5,600 miles. I don't want to get into this too much because I can't wait to show you more when we come back and we get to this passage. But let me just give you a little taste of how big and awesome and amazing the city of Jerusalem is going to be, the new one that comes down out of heaven and, and comes to the earth, the new heaven and the new earth. If you were to have a square the size of this city and you tried to fit it right now on the map of the United States, you couldn't without part of it sticking out across the border. It won't fit anywhere. It's roughly the distance, one side is the distance from New York City to Miami. That's how far one wall will be, a city that goes from New York City to Miami. Oh, and by the way, if it's also the same height as it is length and wide, Do you realize that it will go three times past the space station? There's more I'm going to show you later on. I'll give you one more little taste. Engineers are saying, well, in order for the city to be that big, I mean, good grief, the walls would have to be. Well, the Bible even tells us how thick the walls are. It says that the wall of the city had 12 foundations, we know. But we also see there in verse uh, 17, he measured the wall, and it it was 144 cubits. 
that is 72 yards thick. Almost three quarters of a football field. That's how thick the walls are. And engineers who pull out their protractors have done the math, and they found out that's how thick the walls would have to be to handle a wall that goes as far and high as they go. Of course, God doesn't have to use our engineering for the new heaven and the new earth. But let me just tell you, the Bible gives us some really cool descriptions. And I'm going to get into when we get into that next week, I think. If we do, it'll be definitely the week after. But when we get into looking at the new Jerusalem and all that, I'm going to get into some ideas as to why I think the scripture points to it. It's so far and so wide and so high. But are they the same city? It's pretty obvious they're not. One's got a perimeter of six miles. The other one's got a perimeter of 5,600 miles. They're not the same. They're not the same. Another evidence that these, the new heaven and the new earth are not the same as the millennial kingdom is the fact that in the new earth, there is no temple. Look at Revelation 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no temple. Why is there no temple? Because God himself is there and Jesus. God the Father and the Son are both there in the new heaven and the new earth. Go back with me to Isaiah, sorry, not Isaiah, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 40. I'm not going to read these passages to you. I just want you to follow along and look at the headings. We're going to start in Ezekiel chapter 40. In Ezekiel chapter 40, we see the description of the millennial temple and what it's going to look like during the millennial kingdom. And Ezekiel was given the vision of the new temple. In chapter 40, you see the vision of the new temple and the different courts of it all through that chapter. Chapter 41, we see the inner part of the temple described. Chapter 42, we see the temple has chambers. Chapter 43, we see the glory of the Lord filling the temple. Remember, there was a time in the nation of Israel where the, the glory of the Lord left the temple because of their sin. It's during the millennial kingdom that His, his glory will come back and fill the millennial temple. Uh, we see in chapter 47... That there's going to be a river that flows out from underneath the foundation of the temple to the Dead Sea and it turns it into fresh water. And folks, there's going to be a temple in the millennial kingdom. There's going to be a temple there. But John says this new heaven and new earth, there's no temple. They can't be the same thing. Again, the people that try to say there's really no literal millennial kingdom, they try to just make it the same thing as heaven. It's not. It's not. They have to be different. Let me give you one more example. Another evidence that the new heaven and the new earth of Revelation 21 is not the same as the renewed earth of the millennial kingdom is the fact that in the new heaven and the new earth, there are no more sun and moon. Go back to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, look at verses 23 through 25. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So in the new heaven and the new earth, we get all new skies. They're different. I don't know what they're going to be like, but they're going to be totally different, and there's not going to be sun and a moon. Oh, we did see back in Isaiah 66 that they were going to be going to worship God from new moon to new moon and Sabbath to Sabbath. During the millennial kingdom, there's still going to be a sun and a moon, but not in the eternal state. They're not the same. Let me give you one more example from Scripture that they're not the same thing. One other evidence that Revelation 21 is describing something totally new is the fact that in the millennial kingdom, Jesus the Son reigns on the earth. We've already done that study. And that there will still be death. 
But in the new heaven and the new earth, God the Father will dwell with man on the earth and there'll be no more death. We already read Isaiah 65 verses 18 and following, how the people that die at 100 will be considered accursed. An infant that only lives to 100, you know, is going to be considered hardly lived out their days. There's death in the millennial kingdom. We hopefully understand that, especially at the end of it when Satan's released and all those people that rebel against Jesus are killed. But look at Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We've already seen in our study last time we were together that at the end of the millennial kingdom, all the dead from all unrighteous dead from all time are brought before the great white throne. They're judged and they're cast into the lake of fire. At the end of that, there's no more dying anymore. And from then on in the new heaven and the new earth. Well, I don't want you to miss something we just read because I want to take some time to look at it. What I just read to you, I'm going to read to you again. Because I think most of us have never allowed this truth to really sink in. And I want to take some time tonight to deal with something that we just read that you might have missed. Look again at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Do you see it? Revelation 21 verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. Three times it says that God's going to be with us. We've always pictured going to heaven as going to be with God, haven't we? Heaven isn't been in our mindset. We get to go be with God. And I'm going to show you that that's okay for a time period because there's a short period between the church age and the, and, and the millennial kingdom where we go be with God. But then when he comes back to rule and reign on the earth, what happens with us? We come with him. And we rule and reign on the earth. And then he makes a new heaven and the new earth. And don't miss this. God then excitedly from the throne says, now I get to be with you. You see, there's a problem that we have right now. Is that even though we've been forgiven, even though we've been redeemed, we got stuff that still pulls us away from God, doesn't it? The Bible tells us there's three things. One is our flesh. Another thing is the world and the system of the world and the way the world thinks. And the third thing is what? The devil himself. Our flesh, the world, and the devil are daily striving to pull us away from God. By the way, um, at that point, at the new heaven and the new earth, will there be any more humans in their flesh anymore? Flesh will be gone and done with. No one will be tempted by the flesh within them because all the humans are now dead. All of us who are alive will have already been getting our new bodies. No more flesh. Oh, by the way, um, the world system and the ways of the world, where are they going to be? Gone. All in the lake of fire. The only people alive are the ones who have been redeemed and have a heart for God. Oh, and where's Satan at that point? At the lake of fire. So now the flesh, the world, and the devil have all been ultimately defeated. And God says, now I get to be with man. So I want to show you some things tonight that first off, it's okay to think you go be with God because for a time period, we do go be with him. 
But when he comes back to this earth, we come with him, rule and reign, and then at the end of that makes a whole new one, and he gets to come be with us. Let's lay that all out from Scripture. Go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So this mindset of saying we go be with Jesus is okay for a time period because that's what Jesus taught us. Oh, don't miss this. You've heard me say this before. Some of you might not have remembered. But when he says, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. Many of us have grown up under the teaching that Jesus is up in heaven preparing a place for us. Have you ever heard of that kind of teaching? He's not swinging a saw. He's not, swinging, he's not working spackle. He is not up there making a room for us. The scripture shows us, in my Father's house are many rooms. They already exist. When he says, I go prepare a place for you, he was just talking about the cross. He hadn't died on the cross yet. He was just simply saying, I'm going to go make a place away for you. In my father's house already exists all the room. The space already exists. When he died on the cross, he said, it's finished, paid for, done. He didn't have to go up in heaven and start putting on his apron and build you a spot. I've heard too many people sing songs about how he took six days to create the world. He's been working on my place for 2,000 years. It's going to be really awesome. No, he already prepared a place for you. He did it on the cross. That's how he prepared a place for you. In his father's house already existed the many rooms. He's not up there preparing a place for you. It's been prepared. It's yours. And if he prepared a place for you, if you've received his salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, he will come back and take you so that you can be with him where he is. That's the rapture. Go to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, look at verses 21 through 23. Paul sitting in prison there in Rome, and he says, To me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul said, I'm struggling right now. I don't know if I'm going to live or die. If I live, it means more reward for me later on for what God does for me in the years that are left. If I die, I get to go be with Christ, which is the best. So there's nothing wrong with a mindset of saying we get to go be with God. But please hear me. That's temporary. Our getting to go be with God and go be with Jesus when we die or at the rapture is a temporary thing. By the way, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, write this down. We won't have time to turn there. 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18, Paul talks about the rapture. He says, I don't want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And we who are alive, we're going to be caught up. We're going to be changed. We go be with the Lord. We'll ever go be with him. The rap, that's a picture of the rapture. You know what's kind of cool that somebody brought out last night in the study? He said, I've never thought about it until you were teaching on this, how we get to go be with him and we're always going to be with him. The people that have died right now in Christ who have gone to be with the Lord... When he comes to rapture the rest of us who are on the earth, they come with him when he raptures us, and then we go back and be with him. You're not, they're they're going to be with Jesus, and they're with Jesus, and even when he comes to get us, he, they don't leave him then. They come with him when he comes to get us. Isn't that cool? 
You get to go be with the Lord and you're with him forever and ever and ever. And when he comes back again to the earth at the end of the seven year tribulation period and rules on the earth, we'll come and rule and reign with him. But don't miss this. At the end of all that, when sin and death, Satan, the world and the flesh are finally all gone. God loudly from the throne says, now I get to be with you. Now the dwelling of God is with man. He says it three times. I get to go be with man. I get to go be with man. I get to go be with you. Folks, don't miss this. God's heart is for us. And I'm going to show you from Scripture that has always been God's heart. That's always been God's heart to be with us. Go back to the book of Leviticus. I know it's the one you hate. Because you've all tried to read the Bible and you started off in Genesis chapter 1 and you really enjoyed Genesis with its cool stories. And then Exodus came and there's some really neat stuff there. And then you get to Leviticus and you quit. But in Leviticus chapter 26, look at verses 1 through 13 and listen to the heart of God in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 1, you shall not make idols for yourselves. He's telling the nation of Israel or erect an image or pillar and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I'll give peace in the land, and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid and I'll remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land you shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you you shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Look at God says to him. He goes, guys, I've, I'm the one who's for you. And as I bring you into the land, if you'll just listen to me, if you'll just trust me, I promise you, you'll never lack You'll always have everything you need. The rain when you need it. You'll have the crops more than... You'll actually have old stuff that you get to keep eating because it doesn't rot. And not only that, you'll be clearing out the old when the new stuff comes in. I'm going to so bless you, you won't be able to imagine it. Folks, listen to me. The health and wealth preachers have taken a biblical truth to an unbiblical dimension. But there's a truth from the scriptures that shows if we walk in the will of the Lord, He will bless. He's for us. He's good. He tells us if you are generous... The measure you give, I'll give to you with your, your cup running over, splashing out of your lap. I'm, watch what I do because God is for us. And we need to understand, God said, and I'll walk among you. I'll be with you. We've had this wrong mindset that God's up in heaven with his arms crossed and yeah, one day you get to be up here with me. No, that's not his heart. It's always been that he be with us. Back in the garden, what do we remember about the garden between God and Adam and Eve? He walked with them in the garden. That's how they knew he was coming. They recognized the sound of him walking in the garden. Folks, too many Christians don't understand how much God is for us. 
The reason God gives us his commands is not to see if we will keep them. It's because he knows what's best. And whenever we listen to our own understanding or what other people say or what the world is offering us, instead of trusting him, we actually say, God, I don't trust you. I think I know better or I worship something else. And folks, if you will just trust him, his ways are best. Through most of my life, people have said, Jim, everything you touch turns to gold. And all I can say is I can just simply say that God's word is true and he will bless those who honor him. I'm not perfect. Please don't hear that. But I believe 2 Chronicles 16, 9, where it says, The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to him. As we've raised our children and we've experienced some amazing blessings, I've had to say to our kids over and over, do you want to live a life like this? Trust God. Walk with God. Don't rest in the flesh. Don't try to pinch a penny and try to make things work out. I wish I could take you to the book of Deuteronomy where God told the nation of Israel. And he said to them, when you go through your harvest fields, don't and, and you drop some sheaves, leave it. Leave it. It's for the poor. And when you shake your olive trees, don't go back and try to get every little olive. Leave it. When you pick your grapes, don't go back and try to get every little grape. Leave it. Because if you will trust me and not try to pinch every little penny, I'll bless you. But you know what's happened to most of us Christians? We really don't believe God's for us. And we try to be good stewards and pinch every penny and try to do the best we can with God's money instead of just trusting what he says and believing. That's why in our ministry, we don't charge for anything. You get CDs when you come and we give them to you. The DVDs on the cruises, they're given to you. People say, I'd like a book. Well, here, take it. If you want to pay for it, great. If not, I don't care. I never want to charge someone and say, you only can hear God's word unless you have enough money. And we have done been stupid in the eyes of the world when it comes to money. But we've watched God bless us like you wouldn't believe. And let me just tell you, his way is best. He is for us. He wants to walk with us. And he's not up there waiting to see how we do. He is pursuing us. We see it in Luke 24, don't we, with the two men on the road to Emmaus. They were discouraged. They thought he was the one. And they start heading home. Who chased them down? He had a busy day, hadn't he? I mean, he had just risen from the dead. He'd already met with Peter and the women. He'd deal with all that stuff. And he still chases the two guys as they go walk away. God is the pursuer. God wants to be with you. He died for your sins. He just says, let me come in. Let me be with you. Yes, we get to go be with God for a time. But his heart is to be with us. Go to John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now let me just stop real quick and show you how I've read that wrong for so long. For years I've read that the way I prove to God I love him is I obey his commandments. And I have for too long in my life put my focus on obeying his commandments. And that's how we've been taught, obey God's rules. Isn't that what we've been taught? And so my focus has been on obeying God's commandments. Anybody else tried to obey God's commandments? How'd you do? You're like me, right? Failure. Until just recently, when God has opened my eyes to the fact that he pursues me, he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. The focus is on loving God. 
Then this say in Galatians 5.16, so I say if you walk in the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Our focus should not be on not sinning. Our focus should be on loving God. Let me help you out real quick. You can't even love God. 1 John chapter 4 says we love because he first loved us. Let me tell you how you start loving God. You take the time daily to receive the love of God who pursues you. You need to get up every morning and not say, Lord, I will do the stuff you want me to do to prove to you I love you. No, you get up in the morning and you say, God, I believe that you're for me. You've already proven it through your death on the cross. And while I was your enemy and powerless and a sinner, you died for me. How much more now that I've been reconciled are you going to be for me? And so today, begin to open my eyes to your love for me. 2 Thessalonians 3.5 says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness, or, the steadfastness, can say it, steadfastness or perseverance of Christ. Listen closely. The Bible says that God is the pursuer. God is the one who's for you. And the only way you will ever love God is if you would take the time to receive his love. And that's going to be an unlearning process and a learning process. And I can tell you from experience, having been a Christian for over 40 years, I'm starting finally to get it. And guess what? When I actually receive his love, my natural response is to love in return. And I obey his commandments and I don't even try. We've been taught the wrong thing. We've been telling Christians to live in the flesh, trying to serve God. I'm looking you in the eye tonight and say, stop trying to live for God. You just receive his love and watch what happens. You just believe that what he says is really true, and you watch what happens. John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you, what? Forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I won't just give birth to you and then disappear. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I'm in my Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. Did you catch that? Have you ever wondered why Jesus, when he rose from the dead, didn't appear to Pilate? He didn't appear to the rest of the world and go, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. But who did he appear to? Only the believers. He said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Don't miss this either. Because we've talked tonight about the fact that for a short period of time, when we die or are raptured, we go be with him until he comes and sets up his kingdom. And ultimately, in the end of the millennial kingdom, when he sets up the new heaven and the new earth, he gets to come be with us. But you've already got him coming to be with you now. Stop thinking about when I get to heaven in the rapture or when he takes me home and my death. Stop thinking about one day how awesome it'll be when he comes and dwells with us. Yes, that'll be awesome. But do you not realize, have we not realized that we have him with us now? The Bible actually says in Romans chapter 5 that God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has given us. Don't let anybody teach you you need more of the Holy Spirit. You've already got it. He's poured out his, his love into your heart through the Holy Spirit he's given you. It's now a matter of learning to receive all. That's why Paul says, writing from prison in Ephesians chapter 1, after having hear of your love and your faith and your love for each other, my prayer now is that you'll understand the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of God, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Folks, 
It's time that we Christians stop trying to accomplish things in the effort of man by trying to be good and trying to stop whatever it is that kicks our butts. But believe that actually God himself will do what he said he would do and begin to walk with him. And how that happens is you have to learn to daily receive his love. Let me ask you a question. Those of you who are parents, do your kids have any idea how much you love them? They have no idea, do they? They have no clue. As they get older, maybe they get a better of a taste when they start to have kids of their own. But as you raise them, you can do everything in your power to show them how much you love them. They still struggle and question it at times, don't they? Especially when you make decisions they don't like and you take away the car keys or whatever it is. Doesn't that make them question your love? The Bible says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Your Heavenly Father today wants you to understand, I'm for you. And I can't wait until the day in which I get to come be with you, and we won't have this struggle with the flesh or the world or Satan anymore. That's going to be an awesome day. But don't lose sight of the fact that he hasn't left you as an orphan. He lives inside of you. And folks, that's the issue. Too many of us say we're Christians because we're baptized. Too many of us say we're Christians because we pray to prayer or we join to church. The Bible says the evidence that we are truly his child is we have his spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? Romans chapter 14, verse 8, and those who are led of the spirit are sons and daughters of God. He goes on later and says, his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're his children. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Do you have his spirit? And if you have his spirit, it's not an intellectual knowledge. It's a, it's a relationship that you know is real. You know when he's grieved. And I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit here because I want to ask you a question. What keeps us from him? What keeps, I mean, if he's with us now, go to chapter 17. Let me show you something real quick. John chapter 17, you were in just in 14. Look at verses 20 through 26. In John 17, verse 20, Jesus is praying right before the cross. He says, I don't ask for these only. He's talking about the 11 that were his disciples then that he was praying for. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He's not praying that we would be one this way, folks. Listen, he's not praying that we'll be one this way. He's praying that we, we be one this way. He simply, and, and he clarifies it over and over. He says, I want those who believe in me through their message that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, that they also may be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. He's talking about this relationship that he had with the Father. Would you not agree that Jesus and the Father were pretty close? Jesus says, I want them to have the exact same relationship you and I have. I want them to be so united with you, just like I am united with you. That's my prayer for them. All right, and then he goes and says in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I love this, 
I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What was Jesus saying? I want them to have the same relationship that you and I have. I want them to see my glory, and I'm going to continue to make your love for them known. The love you have for me, I want to continue to make it known to them. That means every morning when you get up, God's saying, I want to love you. Let me show you. Let me show you. What keeps us from this then? If we have him living within us, if he's not left us as orphans, if he's given us his spirit, what keeps us from this love? Unbelief. Laziness. It's self-severance. It's, it's sin. It's sin. Oh, I got some good news for you, though. For those of us who are in Christ and he in us, we are not separated from him nor forsaken by him. You know the Bible says that. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. But when we choose to sin, the Bible says it grieves him. And it quenches his spirit in such a way that we don't sense his continual presence. And I want you to begin as you learn to walk in the spirit, to recognize when the spirit of God is convicting and saying, don't go there. Or when you've grieved the spirit. And those of you who have sinned, by the way, you know what, what it feels like. I know what it feels like when the spirit of God within you says, eh, not what I had for you. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it just simply says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed unto the day of redemption. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, it just simply says, Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Does that mean God leaves you when you sin? No, He'll never leave you. But He gets quiet sometimes when we choose to live in our own energy, in our own effort. He's not going to force Himself. He's a loving God. And He wants you to choose whom you're going to obey, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6. But when we grieve him, in James chapter 4, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Don't you realize that the spirit he gave to indwell you is jealous when we start to live for the world instead of him, trust in our own understanding instead of trusting him? But he gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. All we need to do in those times when we sin, and we still sin, is to just acknowledge it and go back and receive his love. You want perfect evidence of it? Go to 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to read to you all around that famous passage we love to quote in 1 John 1, 9. But look at all around it. 1 John chapter 1. Look at verses 5 through 10. Writing to Christians, John says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. He just simply says, guys, we still sin. And if God is light and in him is no darkness and we walk in sin, we walk in darkness and we say we're walking in fellowship with God, we're lying. We're fooling ourselves. Oh, he hadn't left. He hadn't, he's not going to forsake you. But you've grieved him. You've quenched him. But listen, he's not saying, well, as soon as you come back to me, then I'll pour my love out to you. No, he's continually pouring it out to you. When we sin, we actually turn our back on it. It's not that we have to turn around and say, oh, God, please start loving me again. God says, I never stopped. He's actually continually pouring. I've always for years kind of pictured that when I sinned, God would turn the spigot of his grace off. 
And I had to say, oh, God, please forgive me for what I've done for the 17,000th time. And then he'll say, oh, okay, and he'll turn his grace back on to me. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says whoever lives and believes in him have rivers of living water flowing up within. That kind of sounds like it never stops, right? I picture it this way now. I got a hose of God's grace that attached to that spigot, and it's always in the on position, never to be turned off again. When I sin, I personally kink the hose. God doesn't shut off his grace toward me. I choose to kink the hose. And God lovingly says, hey, Jim, tapping me on the shoulder, you kink the hose. Hey, Jim, you kink the hose. Jim, you kink the hose. Let it go. He's for us. Oh, he's so for us. I want to stop here for tonight for two reasons. There's a bunch more I want to close with. And we don't have time. And two, this is kind of where I got stopped last night, too. So it'll be better that we both, because I have got more that I wanted, had planned to get done. But let me just say this to you. Go back to Revelation 21 and look at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Listen closely. God on the throne says, hey, John, write this down, because what I'm about to tell you is trustworthy and true. Now, does that mean that everything else was a lie? No, God cannot lie. So if God cannot lie, says, write this down for sure. Because what I'm about to say to you is trustworthy and true. We want to know what he's about to say, don't we? And then he says, it's done. It's done. It's done. All you have to do is receive it. And we're going to get into that next week when we look at the fact that Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Isaiah says, come and buy without money. We're going to take a look at why it says, it's done. These types are going to be on the out. These will be on the end, and we need to make sure we know what that means. So when we come back next week, we'll get into that and then into further into our study. I love you all. Thank you so much for coming. We'll see you next week.